Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Matzav podcast, the podcast that brings you all the latest updates and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications and Digital Director at IPF. And I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow. This week we're going to talk about a fascinating new book that was recently released um, called The Last Palestinian, The Rise and Reign of Mahmoud Abbas. The book was co-authored by Amir Tibon, um, Aritz's Washington correspondent, and Grant Rumley, a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Let me just start by saying that this is really a fascinating book, and as somebody who keeps tabs of everything that's going on, I was really pleased to read it and felt like I was uh, learning a lot. Um, can you please tell us about the book and its title? So, hi. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, the title of the book, The Last Palestinian, we chose it for a number of reasons. Uh, the first, and we have to be honest here, uh, because our publisher thought that the headline <laughs> we wanted before was not good enough and said, find a better headline. The second is because we think Mahmoud Abbas is a leader that represents in his own biography, in his own life story the history of the Palestinian national movement, at least in the last 80 years, and we don't see another leader emerging after him that will have that kind of biography that kind of story, and the ability, just because of what he's been through in his life being born in Palestine under the British mandate, before Israel becoming a refugee in 1948, living in the refugee camps, traveling all over the Middle East, first for personal reasons, work, family, then becoming part of the movement, being close to Yasser Arafat, and then uh, eventually becoming a senior person in the Palestinian Authority and the leader of it. All of that story uh, really makes him someone who can come and say that he speaks for the entire Palestinian people, those in the West Bank and in Gaza, Arab Israelis still, you know, who are living in Israel, refugees scattered all over. He claims to speak for all of them, and while obviously some will disagree, this is a leadership feature that we don't see someone else carrying with them after Mahmoud Abbas is gone. He is the last member of the founding generation of the Palestinian National Movement, and that's the main reason that we went with this headline. And then there was another element to it, which was a bit of a homage uh, to two of uh, Abbas's um, closest confidants over the years, uh, Hussein Aga and Ahmed Khalidi, who represented him in a number of secret negotiations. And Aga wrote a very interesting article uh, about Yasser Arafat at the time, together with Rob Malley, who was a senior official in the Clinton and then Obama administrations. They called Arafat the last Palestinian, explaining how after he will go, uh, there will not be another national figure of his uh, standing. And we think that Abbas, in certain ways, did rise to a position of national leadership and to becoming the most important person in Palestinian politics, but we don't see anyone being able to conquer that uh, position after him. And like most things in the conflict, there's another explanation on top of an explanation on top of an explanation, and that is um, it, it also works in a sense, um, you can think about it as, as the last man standing, in a sense, the last Palestinian man standing. He's basically, over the course of his presidency from 2005 to today, shrunk the circles around him 
he's lost his election and then he loses Gaza and he's pushed out the independents and the technocrats like Salem Fayyad from office and then he's sort of presided over this schism within his own party where he's purged people associated with Mohammed Dahlan people associated with Marwan Barghouti from positions of power and so he's, it's almost like he's got this shrinking cabinet of people and he's, he's one of the last men standing I'm going to ask a question that may be a bit controversial. I mean, Amir, you're Israeli, I'm Grant, American, and you're writing a book about Mahmoud Abbas, Palestinian leader. Were you guys at all skeptical that this book... Oh, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> what is that? The Beatles. What Please is that? do not <laughs> edit it. Please leave it, leave it Where in the Where is that bucket. coming from? Oh, my God. This, mean, is, the mean, the way, this is the answer? By the way, this is the answer to your is question. <laughs> It's easy. Okay. Uh, it's easy. Think, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Now you've got a mirror singing on your okay. podcast. It's about to go viral in Israel. Oh, my God. That was crazy. Okay. Do, 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 do. All right. Cool ask the question again. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's ask the question again. Do not edit that out. Please. I will. I will. I'll, try, I'll try my best. Okay. So, Amir, you're Israeli, and Grant, you're an American. Were you guys at all skeptical about writing a, a biography about Mahmoud Abbas? Well, I think that's a great question, and uh, obviously, the, obviously, being an Israeli and being an American influences the way you write about these issues, and not just being an Israeli and an American, but being associated or affiliated with certain schools of thought uh, within those countries. Uh, I think uh, uh, someone who supports the settlement movement in Israel, someone who's more to the right-wing sports league, could, if they needed to write a, a book about Mahmoud Abbas, maybe it would have been different than the one I wrote. We are not doing this and telling anyone, look, you know, uh, no place for a Palestinian biography of Mahmoud Abbas. That's not even the way that... It's not even close to the way we're thinking about this. You know, if someone who is in Ramallah uh, wants to write a, a, a biography of Abbas uh, and contribute more to the research on this issue and bring more new information and more insight and more analysis, we're all for it. We, we wanted to write this book because we had some discussions between the two of us about doing a book together about the conflict, about the two-state solution, building on articles that we've both written over the years, sometimes together and a lot of times separately. And when we started doing the kind of research background reading that you do to to settle on the ideas and the themes of the book, we ran into the, to us, astonishing fact that there was no written biography of Mahmoud Abbas. He wrote a memoir in the 1990s about the peace process, but a lot has happened ever since. And also, it, it was not per se a biography, and also not an autobiography. It was a memoir focused on very specific issues. And we said, wait, before we sit down to write some very ambitious book of analysis and ideas about the conflict, maybe we can contribute something. We can uh, actually uh, shed light on new uh, information, do some serious research about Mahmoud Abbas, because this is a leader of the Palestinian National Movement and of the Palestinian Authority, uh, entering you know 13th year in power, so important to the history of the peace process, and nobody's written a book about him. So would it, would it have been more politically correct if the book was written by a Palestinian journalist and a Lebanese or a senior Syrian journalist? Maybe, but we wanted to write a book. We ran into this idea, and we did it. And if someone wants to say, well, he's Israeli and he's American, so they can't write it, it's also okay, so they will say it. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, I think we're 
pretty clear-eyed about what we produced here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from an Irish-Italian family in Michigan, um, and obviously if I, was, if I was a journalist in Ramallah, I would probably have a better grasp of the Palestinian politics. And, and you know, what we produced here, I think we kind of came into it as if we can make any contribution to the field, if we can explain things in a way where we say, you know, at a certain juncture, this is what Abbas's calculation was to us. This is what, of the options that he had, here's what he chose. Um, if that can, if that can sort of add value to the discourse, and ultimately, you know, I don't think, I don't think Amir and I are going to explain Palestinian politics in a revolutionary way here, but we've we've studied it, and the hope is that we can we can sort of try to help explain it and add some value to the conversation, and so that it becomes a factor in the conversation, so that people then say you know what, maybe we should be paying attention a little bit more to what's happening within Fatah and within the disparate parties of the PLO. And so I think if that comes through, then, then the book's a success. Yeah, that, that is something that has been frustrating to both of us uh, as young people who are uh, entering this field of uh, writing uh, and thinking and covering the conflict, that at least on the American side, uh, there is a lot of expertise and discussion and analysis on internal Israeli politics. Being an Israeli journalist in Washington, I meet people all the time who explain to me what needs to be done to get Bibi to sign a peace agreement, how to change the Israeli coalition, how Avi Gabay can win the next election, why Yair Lapid is actually the best candidate to beat Bibi. Everyone's an expert. Very few people will even try to engage a conversation like that when it comes to the Palestinian side. And that was, again, one of the reasons that we thought it was important to, to write this book. Now, can you tell us a bit more about the process of writing the book? I also noticed there's a lot of quotations from um, Hamas members. Were they part of um, face-to-face conversations or? Snapchat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so uh, we, uh, we basically, when we, when we pitched this book, we asked for, I think, 10 to 12 months. And um, and the publisher came back with you can do it in six months, um, and we weren't exactly in a position to bargain, so we deployed pretty quickly out there. Um, and Amir knows everyone in Israel and a lot of people in in the West Bank, and um, and so for him, for him, I mean, he just he just was calling up you know very prominent Israeli folks who'd been in there. For for me, I I, um, I went to I spent about six to seven weeks total in the West Bank. I had lived there in two thousand nine, and I and I work on it, but um, but you know I'm not a journalist, so I'm not regularly phoning up people. So um, I used a couple of fixers, and you know I spent I think over three trips, and I attended the Fatah Congress in November, and um, and I I you know I I made sure to use fixers who were trusted by Hamas because what I what I wanted here was. You, know, you get the party line from a couple of Abbas guys. You can get you can get Saab Arakat to sort of wax poetic about missed opportunities and what Abbas was thinking. But I wanted to get people who were who were clear eyed around him, people who were in his party but critical of him, people who were in his party not critical of him but advocating different positions from him, and people within Hamas um, and people within PFLP and the Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. And I, you know, I went uh, to Dehesha camp and then to Balata camp and did some interviews there and, and really wanted to, as best I could, try to get as many cross-sections as possible. And, um, you know, the, the, the Hamas interviews were, were fine. I mean, really, there was, there, was, there was never an interview that was, that was, that was super challenging. I think, 
I think most people were at times a little uneasy with commenting on Abbas because he's still in power. And so, you know, I think we say we did 70 formal interviews. We certainly did well over 100 informal conversations and interviews. And, and a lot of the times in the book, we're protecting our sources because he is still in power. And so people don't want to bash him. And, and that's another thing about being sort of, um, sort of, you know, forward about what you produce. This book um, would probably would probably be a, a little more, maybe not a little more complete, but it would be a different book if it was produced in the months after Abbas had retired or, um, or you know, had, had passed away, uh, people, would, people would probably be a bit more candid, maybe a little more negative, maybe a little more positive. But, you know, while he's still in power and while he still controls the West Bank, it's a little bit of a different animal to go over there and interview. Was there anything that surprised you guys while doing all this research um, about Abbas? A lot. Um, You come into a project like this thinking, well, you know, I already know a lot about the conflict and the history and the politics and the movement. And you, of course, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you you don't know. Um, For me, one issue that was surprising was uh, going into the issue of the Camp David summit in 2000. I remember that we talked about it between the two of us and we said, well, Kim David, so much has been written about it, so much has been said over the years, all the participants pretty much wrote their own takes, analysis and memoirs, and we know the Israeli narrative, we know the Palestinian narrative, we know the American narrative we know the small number of people from each of the sides that kind of contradict the narrative of their own side, like, you know, Rob Malley taking a position that's a bit different than most of the other American participants and we said, what, what, what else can we bring about Camp David? But then when he started talking to people who were there, people who were involved at the time, specifically about Mahmoud Abbas's role, we told them, and we came in with a very humble um, uh, approach. We said, we don't want to rewrite the history of Camp David. That has already been done again and again. We just want to write you know, a page or two about Abbas at Camp David. And the things people started telling us were fascinating and, and new to us about how the internal Palestinian political dynamic had a lot of influence on him at Camp David and caused him to become, at least according to some of the accounts we heard, the most stubborn and uncooperative and some even say uh, sabotaging uh, Palestinian negotiator at Camp David. Uh, And also possible mistakes that were done on the Israeli side, on the American side, with regards to promoting Muhammad Bakhlan, who already back then was Abbas's uh, big political rival. Then he was a rising star as the head of the security organizations and agencies. And he, Abbas felt that the Americans were giving too much attention to Bakhlan. He felt that the Israeli delegation had too many members in it who were close to Bakhlan. A lot of people from the security establishment. None of his friends, Abbas's old friends in Israel, like Paris, like Yossi Balin were included. So those were fascinating angles on Camp David that if we had not decided to just laser focus on Abbas at Camp David, we probably wouldn't have written. Uh, And so when you write a history of a person, it a lot of times will help you learn about broader histories of uh, events and trends and things you thought you already had figured out but turns out there's always more to dig yeah i'll just say i'll just say really quickly i I think um 
by merit of doing interviews with, with a lot of people around him, I, I gleaned a lot about his temperament and his, his personality. And, um, and you know, it's, it's always, it's, it's so hard. It's not a science to, to narrow someone down based on what people said about them. But um, I, I think one thing that kind of emerges is he's a very rigid character. He is stubborn. And when he sets himself on a decision and the decision backfires, he still sort of doubles down on it. And you're either on the team or you're off the team. And, um, and I, think, I think that that's kind of only really gotten more and more it's, – it's just more ingrained with him in age. Um, and it's, it's the kind of thing that, that wasn't always exactly there in the, in the 70s and the 80s when he was kind of maneuvering within the, within the echelons of the PLO. But, but now, I, you know, I think once he – you know, one of, the, one of the moments that we really praise him is – He's, he's made prime minister, the first prime minister, um, in 2003, and he quits after four months because he can't get any of the reforms pushed through. He can't get any control of the security services from Arafat. And he's really sort of regarded in the White House, the Bush White House, as a man of, of conscience, as a man who stood up for what he, for what he believed in. And, um, and, and then, you know, when Arafat passes away, he's, he sort of rises up because of that moment. Um, but but you can also look at that through a lens of well he's also a stubborn guy and this is and this is what he wanted and he wanted control and Arafat wouldn't have given it to him and so this is this is how he acts when he doesn't get control and so um, you know there's I guess there's two ways of, of looking at it there, well there's multiple ways of looking at any person but I think one of them is is I don't see a ton of uh, intellectual flexibility when it comes to policy and and adjusting course and course correcting. Reading the book, I felt that um, you can sort of divide it into two different stories. The first part you have the negotiator, the reformer, um, the person who shies away from the spotlight and really wants to get things done. Um, But then at the second part, you have this paranoid tyrant who basically cares about maintaining his seat and his power and his status. Can you maybe tell us a bit about what caused this shift in his behavior? I like the way you described it, uh, because when we were reading the book before it went down to print, we also said that it, it, it's kind of like a, an uphill-downhill story. And the breaking point, the, the point from where it starts to go down in our analysis, is Gaza in 2007. Or even before that, you would say the elections in 2006, parliamentary elections, when Hamas wins uh, because of the fractures and the petty politics within Fatah, and then, you know, 2007, when Hamas takes over Gaza, that's a breaking point, because from that point on, Abbas doesn't control Gaza anymore. He, 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 he's in name the president of the Palestinian Authority, but, you know, it, some would say that on the ground, he's more like the extended mayor of Ramallah. Uh, in the West Bank, he is, of course, you know, a still in power and, and consolidating his, his control, but also challenged from every direction by Israel, the IDF, the settlers, um, and Gaza is out of his reach, out of his control. He's, he hasn't visited there um, for more than a decade now, and the whole idea of negotiations, when he cannot speak for Gaza, when he cannot really make the compromises because of the competition with Hamas, because of the fear of reliving the Gaza uh, experience in the West Bank itself has been paralyzing for him. 
And that's how someone who rose to power as a negotiator and as a reformer, as, as someone who stands up to Arafat, once he is in the chair, becomes focused on survival. And uh, for survival, he does a lot of things that probably Mahmoud Abbas 20 years ago would have uh, protested against. Um, it's not a... There is no happy ending. It is a tragedy. Um, but... Um, no, it is what it is. I want to ask about, let's just say, do you guys think that Abbas was kind of unlucky in a way? I mean, you talked about what happened with Gaza in 2007. Um, for most of Abbas's time in power, he had fairly right-wing Israeli prime ministers, Ariel Sharon, who at the time wasn't really interested in a, in a negotiated agreement, and then obviously Benjamin Netanyahu since 2009. You did have Ehud Olmert at a time when Olmert was under investigation and politically weak. So when that offer, the far-reaching, or the most far-reaching Israeli offer was made, it's debatable whether Abbas was in a position to, to, to move forward. So do you think Abbas is really unlucky, or maybe he just wasn't really fit for politics? Well, I, I, I don't know if it's, it's um, in our place to say if he was fit for, for Palestinian politics or not. I, 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 I can say I, I think his skill set isn't tailored to um, the leader of a nationalist movement. I think his skill set is, is, is he's an adept bureaucrat. Um, and so I, I think prime minister was probably a role where he would have succeeded if Arafat had let him. Um, I, I will say that that yeah, there's there's a lens to being unlucky, but there's also there's also uh, he's also sort of the master of his own fortune in, in, in several regards, and he's also sort of made the bed that he lies in now. And so, um, re- regardless of who the Israeli prime minister was, he his party fractured on his watch in 2006. He all this all the skills he has as a bureaucrat don't exactly transfer into the leader of a movement. And so, you know, when he becomes president and announces that it's the year of Palestinian elections in 2005, he failed to recognize that the center of gravity within his party had shifted on him. And Marwan Barghouti and Mohamed Dahlan and Jabril Rajoub, these security chiefs, wanted to run their own lists for 2006. And he had sort of his idea of the list, of the elder statesman list. And any, anyways, the, the point was is, is that if you look at 2006, for every one seat, Hamas ran, I think on average, 0.9 candidates and Fatah ran 1.8, you know. So the votes are always going to be dispersed and you're going to split them amongst yourself. And so it's it's a little bit of an own goal, 2006. And 2007 is basically the, the culmination of, of, of both Hamas and Fatah cannot ideologically coexist. They have fundamentally divergent views of what a Palestinian society looks like, and when the cash cow is the PA, they might talk about re- reconciliation, but they're both looking to thwart each other for it. And so, you know, to that, the civil war after 2006 was, in my view, largely inevitable, and at least part of the reason he lost was due to the deficiencies he has as a politician. Um, you know, but but uh, you know, he is he is he has also struggled with with external pressures and regional realignments, and the Arab Spring has shook him, 
and the the ongoing conflict with Hamas has shook him, and certainly uh, Netanyahu has shook him at times. And so, um, yeah, he's unlucky in one sense, and in another sense, he's he's also he's also made this bad. I'll just say that it's very easy for a leader to come and say, "Well, look, what do you want? You know, look at the circumstances. Look what I got." Um, if we switch the mirror for a second, Netanyahu also makes that kind of argument with regards to Abbas and the Palestinians. Well, what do you want from me? Look at Abbas. Look at him. We can't do anything with this guy. And and Abbas will come and say, well, look at Netanyahu. And I think both of them have a valid argument. Um, but also both of them in their behavior, in the way they've handled this issue for the last eight years, have been self-defeating. Because... Yes, Abbas has many deficiencies and weaknesses, but could Netanyahu have achieved more with him? Not, a, you know, the peace agreement that we're dreaming of, but maybe a better situation on the ground? I think yes. And with regards to Abbas, I'll just say one thing. Uh, the Olmert offer in 2008, that's debatable. We actually, in the book, are closer to the conclusion that it was the right call for him at the end of the day not to accept it, although... We also include the argument that was made by Olmert and others at the time that if Abbas had accepted it, maybe the agreement wouldn't have been implemented. Wouldn't have been implemented, but it would have been much harder for Netanyahu to completely disavow it. The fact that Abbas did not respond made it very easy for Netanyahu to come and say, "Well, what? Uh, no, there is no agreement. What are you talking about? Nothing happened." Um, and then 2014, the peace plan that was presented to Abbas by Obama at the White House, again, the Palestinian version has been, look, if we accept this, and Netanyahu says no, so what's the point? But then, on the other hand, what happened is that by not responding, he's giving ammunition to the Israeli right wing, to Netanyahu, to come and say, well, look, what do you want from me? Even Obama gave him this plan, and he didn't take it, and we were willing to make some compromises. So, it's true that uh, you know, leaders inherit circumstances, and they they deal with very very difficult situations. And with regards to Abbas, I think you know everyone understands what we're talking about here: uh, the occupation, the settlements, uh, the fractures within the Palestinian movement. But could he have made certain decisions politically, uh, diplomatically, to make things better for his own people? We think that yes, and that um, history will judge him for not making some of those decisions. So last question is, um, what is the main thing you would hope the readers will get from this book? An appreciation for the constraints that any Palestinian leader faces. Um, The constraints of their party, of their bureaucracy, of their people, of now the geographic divide that the next leader will inherit. Um, and the constraints from external pressures from the Arab states, from Israel, from the U.S., from Europe, from, you know, the, all these all these sort of outside actors. And if the reader can sort of walk away from a biography of Abbas and say, I understand why he hasn't been able to be the guy. I understand why there isn't a, you know, a successful peace process at this point. Um then I, then I think for us it's a success at that point. I agree, and I hope that people who will read this book, whether they like it or not, whether they agree with the thesis or not, uh, will walk away with one conclusion, with it, which is that if we ever do want to get 
uh, to a point of a better situation, of uh, progress on the ground towards peace, it is important to have this discussion about the internal Palestinian political dynamic uh, and to devote as much attention and, and uh, I think when it comes to Washington's resources to understanding it and uh, navigating through it, as is devoted a lot of times to um, the Israeli scene. Um, and if we can make some contribution to that, we'll be happy about it. Thank you uh, both for joining us, uh, Amir Tibon and Grant Rumley. Their book is The Last Palestinian, The Rise and Reign of Mahmoud Abbas. Thanks Thank so you guys much. Thanks for much. having us. Thank for the you. pleasure. Cool. I hope you, I hope you hey. keep the Beatles in oh there. Oh, my God. That was so <laughs> that was good. crazy.